I think in the world of fashion, like she's a super important editor and she's the kind of person that like her name gets bandied about when talk about Anna Wintour replacements. Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, May 3rd. Today, Lauren Sherman is here to talk about a shakeup at the Wall Street Journal magazine, long a hot destination for fashion brands and advertisers, and what's next for the publication as a new editor takes over the journal. And later, Bill Cohan stops by to discuss Jamie Dimon's deal to absorb First Republic, and whether there are still more dominoes to fall in the banking crisis. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today to talk about the world of fashion, the business of fashion with Puck. I guess you're, you're, I, w- I was about to call you like Puck rookie, like newest member. I don't know. You're not a rookie. You're like a veteran of this industry, but you're still our newest journalist on board. Lauren Sherman. How are you, Lauren? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Of course. I want to ask you about something you published last night, uh, which is, you know, kind of at the Venn diagram of fashion business, but also media, which I obviously love talking about. And that is the Wall Street Journal magazine. Their editor-in-chief, Christina O'Neill, she's been there for 10 years, according to what I read here from you. Uh, And she was fired last week by the new journal editor, Emma Tucker. Why? That's, I don't think many people know. Emma Tucker knows that's for sure. But, you know, Christina <laughs> did, did WSJ Magazine is one of these luxury supplements, which they still perform really, really well because they appeal to rich old people who still read print publications. And 
And they're sort of like the last thing left in print advertising for fashion that performs super, super well. And Christina did a really good job with WSJ. She's she has like incredible taste. She has access to good photographers. She had the best writers. She had amazing covers. They had all these events. Like they do these innovators awards, which they're actually still doing. Apparently I just heard, but you know, she really built it into a must buy property for advertisers. Mm -hmm. And I would say in the last couple of years, it's felt like it slowed down a bit and maybe she'll land somewhere great and she'll end up doing something great. She's extremely talented, but it just felt like her cycle had sort of ended. So, you know, a new editor comes in. Emma Tucker is from the UK. She's British. There are a lot of those luxury supplements in the UK, but they operate very differently. I mean, they operate pretty leanly compared to like a big American fashion magazine here, but these publications in the UK are really lean. Like Mm -hmm. we're talking like people make who are 15 years in 45 grand a year as a mid-level editor or whatever. So they operate really leanly. They're a little different in that they're allowed to take free gifts and trips. So that's another expense that is, is for gone. And, um, you know, I think my, from what I've heard from people who work there and be, you know, a, a lot of different people within the business, she needs to cut costs. He also did layoffs within Wall Street Journal on Thursday, mm-hmm. which I actually not sure if anyone else has reported on. I didn't have any other details on them, but there were layoffs within the rest of the business. No one else on Christina's team was was laid off. So that's interesting, but there were layoffs within the, the rest of the business. She needs to cut costs. And I think she has her own opinion of what this section should look like. And Emma Tucker's husband, Guy Peter Howarth, he is a magazine editor. He was editor of Esquire in the early 2000s. He sort of was a figure in the lab mag thing in the 90s. And, yeah. and, and he has a real name and he's a consultant on a lot of different things. He has a, his own little media company. And he actually, I was looking, someone tipped me off to his Instagram account. And I realized that he had been editing the luxury supplement Lux, L-U-X-X, He'd been guest editing the men's issues. So a lot of these supplements, they'll do like a women's fashion issue, a home issue, a men's issue, and to really appeal to those different advertisers. And so he, this is his job. Like he does these kinds of magazines. So I have no intel on whether or not he is going to be involved, but my guess is that she has a real opinion about what she wants it to be. And yeah. It's a British sensibility. I'm curious to see what she does. If she brings in someone different, if she just promotes some of the people there and and saves budget, or if she kind of steers it in the direction of something closer to what to what the Brits do. But you know, it's it's a small it's a small blip in the Wall Street Journal news from from last week. But like, it's significant in the world of fashion because they are such an important advertiser to these brands still. So, you know, I, I agree with you. Like it, it was a pretty distinctive brand. I never subscribed to the print, like home delivery WSJ, yeah. but digital sub. But I would go to like someone's house and the, the magazine would be out. And I was really drawn to it. I mean, it felt like I was reading a luxury product. It felt like I was reading something with very useful, like consumer tips and travel tips and like menswear in my case lush photography yeah. 
and it to me it was like oh this is pretty cool and i would always kind of like steal it from people because it did feel like at least at the time i started checking it out i wasn't as invested in like the business insights of the wall street journal paper but i was interested yeah. in the magazine so like what like what was christina's like point of view and like how how did she build this and what was it before before it had actually been edited there were two previous editors both of them are British, I think. It didn't really work. Christina was pulled in. She had been under Glenda Bailey at Harbor's Bazaar for a really long time and was sort of one of two deputies that she had. And she came in and just really polished it up. She has incredible taste. She knows a lot about the fashion industry, but but she really understands what's happening in like wealth culture. <laughs> so yeah. she had Johnny Ive on the cover. She had... Roger Federer on the cover or whatever, like these, these kinds of people that rich people are interested in. And she knew how to make them look really good. And she, again, she worked with the best photographers. She worked with amazing stylists and she also worked with great writers. So like this guy, Josh Levine, who, when I worked at Forbes, like 15 years ago was a correspondent in Paris at, for Forbes. Like he's an amazing writer. And mm -hmm she has him writing all these great like going into the homes of fashion execs these these sort of lifestyle stories and it it just felt right for the time i think it was a great 2010s publication i'd say now what's happening in that market is stuff is moving in a little more if you look at something like how to spend it from the financial Ch times they actually shortened their name to ht SI, which I think was very hmm. ill-advised, but they, the whole point of view, the editor there is this woman, Joe Ellison, the whole point of view there, they have very, Christina and Joe have very similar taste in fashion, which mm -hmm. is also, I'd say, I don't want to put them myself in their, in their realm, but I like all of their clothes. I, mm -hmm. I don't know if I would say if we have the same taste, but I love their taste, both of them. But the thing about what Joe's doing and how to spend it is it just has like, all, it's really tongue in cheek. And I think that's sort of where the market is moving into a little bit more, um, a little bit more poking fun of the whole thing. And I don't, it's not that I don't think Christine has a sense of humor. I think she does. I just think like the vibe was very elegant and easy and relaxed and, you know, who knows? She could have done it for 10 more years. They lost a little money in 2021, but they were profitable in 2022. I think, to be honest, the bottom line is she probably made a good amount of money. And yeah. Emma Tucker, despite having a lot of other stuff she has to deal with, has opinions about what this should look like and just wanted to change. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I I think the general thing, it was so crazy on Monday. Ever since I started this job, I feel like every puck reporter says this, but you drop an issue and you just get a million texts and everything. And and last week, I think she met with Emma, who she had never met in person before on Thursday. And that morning, I just like suddenly it was like, Christina O'Neill uh, out, Christina O'Neill out, Christina O'Neill out. And everybody was like, what do you, are you going to write about it? Are you going to write about it? And, I think in the world of fashion, like she is a super important editor and she's the kind of person that like her name gets bandied about when talk about Anna Wintour replacements, when Graydon Carter left, she was someone who I know, I don't know how far it went, but she definitely was in the conversation. So she's, she's a big, 
deal. And I mean, the problem is there just really aren't that many jobs. Yes. There, there are, I don't know what, what she'll do. Maybe she'll consult for a while and then one of the big jobs will come up, but like, there's really only three jobs she could take really. And, and I don't think they're going to be open anytime soon. So it's, it's, that's the strange thing about this industry. Last week, paper magazine, which is downtown Uh culture magazine folded completely cut out all its editorial stuff. So it's just, this is the reality we live in now. And, and these people are going to have to just try different things, I guess, but it is, it is a bummer when something good is shook up. Yeah. I think that's one reason puck exists in the first place is to like bring a magazine sensibility to the, to the digital space. Um, and you know, I've said this to people who have either left and or uh, been asked to leave <laughs> TV news yeah. organizations, friends, friends of friends. You know what? It's okay to take a break, Christina. Yeah. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. She'll be fine. Lauren Sherman, thank you so much. Uh, everyone subscribe to Line Sheet. Her uh, news dropped about all this last night. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk J.P. Morgan Chase and First Republic. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. 
By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back to the powers that be. I'm Ben Landy, thrilled to be joined by the one and only Bill Cohan. Hey, Bill. Hey, Ben. Great to be here as always. Bill, let's jump right into it. Last month, we were talking about a chain of regional bank failures and fears that there could be a sort of wider financial crisis. Well, Silicon Valley Bank was bought by First Citizens. JP Morgan just bought the the corpse of First Republic Bank. And on Monday, Jamie Dimon said, the banking crisis is over. Technically, he said, quote, this part of the crisis is over. So what do you think about that? Are we safe? Did the system hold? I, yeah, I mean, that, that's like the big question now, Ben. Is the crisis over? Uh, is this phase of the crisis over? Is it just phase one or phase two and three coming? This is a question apparently being batted around at the August Milken Conference out in Los Angeles as we speak. I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, you know, this so-called, you know, banking crisis you know, has been pretty milquetoast as far as banking crises go. I mean, uh, there, there are three very niche banks that had a unique clientele, a unique business plan, and extremely poor uh, risk management by bank management. And so, you know, you could say, well, they deserve to fail, and they should have failed. And especially, you know, uh, after 13 years of the Fed keeping interest rates uh, zero, and then in an increasing, a rapidly increasing interest rate environment over the last year, it was inevitable, especially with bank management not uh, performing the proper risk management uh, skills and displaying them, uh, i.e. making major league errors in terms of uh, what they were doing with their deposits and their asset side of their balance sheet, this kind of collateral damage in the wake of 13 years of zero interest rates followed by a year of rapidly increasing interest rates makes these bank failures kind of inevitable. The fact that there were two of the three largest bank failures in history occurred in a month gets headlines, but I mean, really, I'm not feeling or seeing or, uh, you know, any of the ramifications in the larger uh, banking sector, in the larger uh, financial markets, which, you know, frankly, we should all be quite uh, happy about because uh, I don't think any of us are, are ready for a uh, a redux of 2008. So whether or not this is uh, the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, time will tell. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, Bill. Of course, but you know, at the same time, like there are real persistent doubts about the whole concept of the regional banking sector now. Like what it's for, who it's for. First Republic failed and went into FDIC receivership even after it had received something like $30 billion of uh, deposit infusions from JP Morgan, from Citi and other banks. Uh, It kept hemorrhaging deposits from customers for weeks. And then on Tuesday, when we're recording this, you had Western Alliance and PacWest, their stocks also plunging on these continued fears. So clearly those jitters are still out there. Look, you know, as I, I, I must have said a million times at this point, we have a fractional banking system. And the way you make money from money is you lend it out to people who want to borrow it at uh, much higher rates of interest. 
and the difference between what you pay for the the money and what you lend it out for is your spread and that's largely where most of your profit is for uh, the banks banking sector as well as associated fees you know there's always fees etc cetera, etc cetera. and there are other ways they make money too but but let's just say that that's like the most essential way that banks make money and unfortunately that means that you know your money isn't at the bank you think it's at the bank and you can take out 100 bucks here or 200 bucks there but if a group of people collectively say venture capital firms and their portfolio companies uh, all want their money at the same time as like happened at silicon valley bank guess what you're going to find that the money is not there so the, the, in in a fractional banking and then you have a crisis in a fractional banking system it's all about confidence it's all about believing that your money is safe at the bank the moment people or a group of people or a, some certain amount of people that serves as like a catalyst uh, believe that their money may not be at the bank or they're worried about it and they go to get it out then you've created a crisis that you cannot recover from. So First Republic sort of died in slow motion, but it was dead the moment people lost confidence in it. Silicon Valley Bank died in 36 hours. It's all about confidence, Ben. It's just, this is a confidence game. Banking is a confidence game. We've obviously decided that, you know, once every 10 or 15 years, we can have these things happen and it'll be all right. You know, in 1929, 30, it wasn't nearly all right in 2008, 2009. It wasn't nearly all right. You know, that's why the uh, J.P. Morgan chases of the world are getting uh, bigger and more powerful. Uh, and the others are uh, having a crisis of confidence. I wonder if one of the reasons that people can't breathe a sigh of relief, as as Jamie Dimon implored us all to do, is there are still these other time bombs on the horizon, including in the commercial real estate market, there's something like $1.5 trillion of loans that come due before the end of 2025. There's potentially a wave of defaults and refinancing issues out there, especially post-pandemic. People aren't coming back to the office. You have all these kind of ghost downtowns, ghost malls. Something like 15% of all of those loans are held by small and medium-sized regional banks. Clearly, there are still issues out there. They may prevent confidence from returning to these banks for a little while. Yeah, I mean, Ben, again, you can't have 13 years of interest rates manipulated down to zero by the central bank of the United States and not have consequences from that. So the question that I have is not that there are consequences, but how could the people who are in charge of various financial institutions allow themselves to be sucker punched and not perceive the risks that they were allowing to build up in their financial institutions so that you know whether it is by investing in mortgage-backed securities or treasuries at the top of the market whether it's by issuing you know jumbo mortgages at below market interest rates to you know their favorite clients whether it's loading up on you know, commercial uh, real estate uh, loans. Uh, I mean, I, I just don't see how you can be a highly compensated steward of a financial institution and fail to properly perceive the risks building up in a zero interest rate environment. I mean, I have written so many times, so often, like a broken record about this as it was happening. 
and you know of course you know the party just rages people just I, I, look i don't get it i don't and i don't understand <laughs> i mean i get it because it's fun it's 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 great to be part of the party but to fail to perceive i mean i think jamie Dimon pretty much got it figured it out i mean ironically it's the sort of the smartest people what what seems to be emerging at the moment is a combination of you know the dodd frank law that forces wall street now to be in the moving business not the storage business uh when it comes to these kinds of assets but but basically you know i think what's emerging here if i may talk about a potentially emerging theme is that that the wall street banks that caused the 2008 financial crisis and they they you know they absolutely did uh with their behavior are pretty much uh have learned their lesson either because they're being forced to by their prudential regulator the fed or because they learned the lesson of 2008 and as we saw jp morgan is still the rescuer and so i guess if there's any good news here is that the dumb uh, management of regional banks didn't get the message and made huge mistakes and the smarter people on Wall Street and in alternative asset management businesses like Blackstone and Apollo, you know, really do understand the risks and seem to have figured it out sufficiently so that we're not worried about them at the moment. But having said all of that, Ben, life throws you curveballs and no one would have, uh, or, or very few, uh, really, uh, you know, predicted, you know, what happened in March of 2008. And it seemed to come out of nowhere that Bear Stearns, after 85 years of consistent profitability, you know, would go down the tubes in a week. So shit happens. <laughs> well, in any case, the, the JP Morgan stock did go up on this news. People seem like they're pretty um, happy with Jamie Dimon for closing this deal. And investors are pleased with that bank, at least. So um, yeah, to your point, capital is flowing to these big banks, um, whether it's just because they, they already have the scale, because they are buttressed by this Dodd-Frank law, which basically makes them too big to fail. It's definitely interesting and strange times in the banking business. Bill, thanks as always for coming by. Uh, thank you, Ben, for having me and giving me the chance to, to talk about it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.